Greetings, fellow travelers. Welcome to Half Travel Will Travel, the podcast of the NUI Galway Archaeology Society. It is your humble announcer that is geeking out at this week's guest. Our intrepid auditor is speaking to Dr. Alison Sheridan about her ongoing work with prehistoric jadeite axe heads in Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. Dr. Sheridan was voted Archaeologist of the Year for 2020 by Current Archaeology magazine, which only proves that 2020 did something right. Sit back, prepare for some surprising giggles, and enjoy the journey. All right, so um, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. I am here with uh, the wonderful Alison Sheridan today, who's going to talk to us about Project Jade and some of the work that she's been doing with it. She actually came to speak to the Society, I think about four years or so now. It was back in my first year as an undergrad, and I think it was one of the first lectures I had gone to. Uh, <laughs> super stoked to have her here to talk, with, talk to us today, albeit virtually. So um, I'll turn it over to you, Allison, if you want to just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Hello, everybody. I'm so sorry that this can't be done in person, uh, but I'm really delighted. And I hope you've all been sort of bearing up during lockdown. Um, so yeah, I, I retired last November after 32 and a half years in National Museum Scotland and I'm a prehistorian. I specialise in the Neolithic and the Calcolithic and the Bronze Age. My PhD was actually about the Irish Neolithic. So I love Ireland, I got lots of friends <laughs> and, uh, and also the, the connections between Ireland and Scotland were amazingly strong during the Neolithic and at other periods as well of course. Um, but yeah, but what we're going to be talking about is Jade, which is this amazing project and I was so honoured to be part of it and it, technically it's finished um, and it was run by an amazing inspirational guy called Pierre Petriquin, who obviously is French and it's a French international project but it was, it was funded by the Agence Nationale de la Recherche in France so it's the French national government fund for research which is great and the, um, he did it in two goes so Projet one had a million euros and then Projet deux got something like 300,000 euros and so he set it up because he and his wife Anne-Marie had done a lot of ethno-archaeology in the past in New Guinea yeah, which was one of the last places on earth where people were still making stone axe heads. Yeah, which was so interesting. So it he is. was able, yeah, to observe people going up to the mountains there to get this sacred rock, bring it back, make their sacred axe heads. And you think, wow, this, yeah, this is absolutely fantastic. And of course, there in New Guinea, they've also had the, the technological changeover since, I guess, since World War II, where steel axe heads came in. Yeah. And before then, whoever got to control the manufacture of stone axe heads got power. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, it was it was a source of power for a lot of old guys, basically. And as soon as the young guys realized, hey, I can get a steel axe. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this you know, caused a, a little bit of upset there. And, imagine, and yeah. <laughs> so basically, Pierre and Marie used their 25 years of field experience with these people to address an amazing archaeological problem or issue so that it's been known for over a hundred years that there are jade axe heads in Neolithic Europe and the word jade it's a, it's a kind of a generic term that covers jadeite and uh, nephrite which are two varieties of it I can go into it in a little bit more detail if you like anyway. um, and 
people have always speculated where where did it come from and in the early 19th century they thought oh well it must be china yeah yeah jade in china yeah yeah yeah. and then somebody else said no i don't think so and there was a, a french geologist called damour and in the 1860s or 70s he said well i just think if you go up to monteviso in the north italian alps uh, i think that's probably where you'll find your source and fascinatingly, a lot of geologists then kind of you know, followed, well, they followed it up, but they didn't go far enough. So a lot of geologists took a kind of economic viewpoint and they thought, oh, well, people in the past, they wouldn't have bothered to go right the way up to the top of mountains. I mean, they're not nuts, are they? And so they said, oh, they probably got some boulders and slabs from the torrent beds. You know how the, you know, the, the torrents and the glaciers would move little bits down? Oh, yeah from the high Alps. So they said, that's probably where they got it. And, and Pierre and, and Marie had seen what happened in, in New Guinea, where uh, there were perfectly usable sources of stone near the villages where people lived. But no, no, no. For the special accents, axe heads, they had to go up to the mountains because that is where the gods lived. Yeah. And they actually, yeah. So in New Guinea, they believe the gods and the ancestors actually live in the mountains. And therefore, if you get the stone from the mountains, a piece of place, Richard Bradley says, if you get that, you are getting something which is alive, it's divine and it's powerful. And you're thinking, my goodness me. And so what they then did in the Alps was to do systematic surveying over the course of well, the best part of 20 years. Yeah. And you can only go up between, I think it's June and September, because that's when the snow is clear from the mm -hmm. high Alps. So they went between 1800 and 2400 meters above sea level. And by systematically going up and down each of the valleys, they were able, finally, in 2003, they found evidence of extraction working up on Monteviso, which is quite amazing. Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> I can imagine how excited they would have been to finally find that. Absolutely. All that work. Yeah, it's incredible. And they also worked out that there was another source on um, Montebegua. So Monteviso is north of Turin, and Montebegua is above Genoa. And they're also looking for nephrite. Uh, sorry, yeah, 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 sorry, nephrite, um, which is this other, other variant, which you don't get on either Monteviso or Montebegua. And they found it in Switzerland. Um, and in fact, they were, I think they're still up there. They, they went last week to, to and it said it's, and he's 77, unbelievable. He's like a Good for him. <laughs> so he sent me a photo on his 77th birthday where his wife was holding up this amazing block of nephrite. And it's just, oh. Awesome. I could be it half was. as active as them when I'm 77, yeah. that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> because in 2009, they took me on a, a trip up Monteviso. My goodness me, it's, you know, they were faster than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, so, so what they found in Projejad, first of all, they, they decided that the only way to understand the whole phenomenon of these, these axe heads was to do it on an international basis because people in different countries in Europe had realized that they have these axe heads yeah so in Britain and Ireland um, you know people have been looking at axe heads for a very very long time and in in, in Britain there's this this thing called the uh, implement petrology committee which has been going for about 80 years now and it's these, these kind of uh, I'm now the chair of the implement petrology group and I can say we're a bunch of, of real obsessive axe head people <laughs> And so they were religiously mapping the distribution of these things and speculating about where they're from. But unless you actually do this on an international basis, 
and gather together all of the bits of information about the context where these things are found and any dating evidence that there is, then you only, you know, if you don't do it on a broad basis, you just get tiny little bits of the story. So what they did was to join up the dots and they've ended up with the most fantastic story to tell. Yeah, that is, that is so cool. I remember that's one thing that had really struck me when you first came to talk to us about this, this project is, you know, how it was such an international undertaking and trying to connect all these different bodies and people. And, you know, I mean, if for something this big, for something that spanned this great distance, you'd have to do that in order to get any idea of the full story. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, otherwise else, you're just looking at tiny little pieces, but you're not going to know what the whole pie looks like unless you actually get them all connected. That's right. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And, and the, you know, the practicalities of, of arranging this and getting axe heads over to France where they were, they were analyzed non-destructively was something else, yeah? So, yeah, it, yeah and I assume all of you students are gonna be far too young, you'll never remember, there was a, used to be a program when we actually went into Europe in the first place many years ago called It's a Knockout or Je Sans Frontières, where people, teams came from all over Europe, you know, and they had the Joker and it was, so it's a little <laughs> bit like It's a Knockout, yeah? So people would come from Germany, blah, 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 and I came from, from Scotland with I have a great big red uh, Samsonite suitcase and I had 27 of these axe heads in it and, uh, and we couldn't fly with it yeah because uh, you, you do not see <laughs> Toy Story 2 you don't put these things in the hole no 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 yeah and, and likewise because they're sharp and pointy um, you don't know whether the pilot is going to let you have them upstairs in the in the uh, cabin with you yeah yeah, yeah. some so people get a bit nervous with that <laughs> <laughs> so I sailed, luckily from here, from Rosyth, you could sail to Zeebrugge, and then we, we took the car uh, further. And, uh, and when I opened my suitcase, well, first of all, when it went through the x-ray thing, as, as we're getting on the ferry, they said, what's this? So I had to open it for them, and I had, you know, 27 axes and five pairs of knickers. <laughs> <laughs> And I had two great big files full of all of the, the permissions and, the, you know, yeah. all that. Kind of and then when I opened it in front of our, our international team, they said, oh, this is magnificent, fantastic. Because it turns out that um, we've got a far higher proportion in Britain and Ireland of ones which have got this glassy polish than on the continent. Yeah. And to get, yeah, it's really, really, really interesting. And to get that polish, it's hundreds and hundreds of hours of elbow grease. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, one of the things that they did was not only, you know, look at the question of where did this stuff come from? Uh, it was, how do you make one of these things and how long does it take? Yeah. Where did they make them? Um, how did they circulate? You know, was it all trade or, or whatever? Um, what was the chronology of, of the, the use because it wasn't just jadeite that was used they used a, a, a range of alpine rocks so the finest jadeite is this amazing luminous light green color it's really beautiful but they also went for darker green so there's stuff called eclogite and omphacetite um, and other other stones like that so there was a whole range that got exploited um, interesting yeah, and, and also by excavating the manufacturing places up in the high Alps, they were able to get some radiocarbon dates. So from that, they were able to say that people were making these things from as early as about 5,300 BC. Oh. And they stopped making them probably about 2,800-ish, yeah? Um, yeah. Wow, and that, is, that, is a, that is thousands 
thousands of years that they were making these axes. Yeah, and also they're able to, to say that they were focusing on different kinds of stone at different periods, and they were making differently shaped ones at different periods. Interesting. Pretty cool, pretty neat, yeah? Yeah, now were they able to, um, I guess like the, the original makers of these of these axes, like how much were they able to tell the difference between these different stones because like you know in modern technology we can yeah. look at it at a molecular level and we can see this yeah. brown rock is different from this brown rock but if you're just exactly. kind of looking at it yeah with, with the naked eye you're kind of like they look kind of the same so like how would yes. you know did they tell it could they tell the difference they could um, tell the difference and, and and in fact when i went up in, into the into monteviso all the stones look green so i kept on saying <laughs> is this it they said no is this it <laughs> Um, but actually, if you know what you're looking for and you get your eye in, yeah. And he reckoned that in the past, uh, well, I mean, the most distinct, the highest quality jadeite is so distinctive and it occurs in these really weird, large detached boulders and they call them boudin, which is a French word for a blood pudding, like a big haggis. Interesting. <laughs> And they're this amazing light green color. But also the stone is incredibly tough. So if you hit it, if you're trying to um, detach a flake, you'll have to give it, you know, many, many heavy, heavy wax. Whereas if it's a softer stone like serpentinite, which is also green, mm -hmm. it's far easier to, 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 to work, yeah? Okay, so that, yeah, that would so make sense. Like, I guess especially yeah, if, cool. sorry, is it just, just yeah, especially cool. if the person, um, because of the amount of work that goes into making these individual axes, yes. you know, the yeah. hours and hours that you spend making them and polishing them, you probably get to be very familiar with that yes. particular kind of rock <laughs> you do you do and there are other other ways as well so one is that he, he showed he was able to demonstrate that they um experimentally polished a little bit just to see to reveal the the color the kind of inside color of the stone so up on the mountains you can see broken rough outs you can see the hammer stones that they use and you can see partly polished you know tr trial pieces which is really interesting um what else what else oh yes and they tend to ring yeah so if you tap them ah. they'll make this kind of ringing sound ringing rocks so that's really interesting um they also were able to work out that um they were setting fire underneath these boulders as a way to detach so you get these things called thermal flakes because okay. if you yeah if you make a fire they that weakens the structure of the rock and it makes it far easier for you to bash and then you get a big curving blade coming off or, or a flake or a chunk of it uh, and with the really hardest stuff they they worked out that you would start with a sort of a small chunk of it you would then take it back home with you on your rucksack because you don't really want to spend you know hours and hours and hours up on the top of the mountain yeah so they probably had these these um kind of uh, expeditions in the summer where they might camp out for three or four weeks then they would take back with them as many of these boulders as they could take yeah and then in their settlements further downhill they would saw the rock yeah because with the really hard, toughest stuff we saw it yeah and and to, in order to saw it you'd need a little slab of wood and a lot of stone uh, sorry a lot of sand and a lot of water and an awful lot of elbow grease mm -hmm. yeah so you just and they say you could doing that you can get something like three grams off per hour you know and, and it's oh. a phenomenal amount yeah. so to make you know one of the finest axe heads would take well over a thousand hours so that's wow. weeks and weeks of work yeah incredible yeah absolutely incredible and they think they might have sort of farmed out the work so that the really boring stuff was probably done by, by women and children yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
that's, that's why you have children is to give yeah. them the menial tasks <laughs> yeah but they've also been able to show that there were specialist communities that specialized in manufacturing these things so both on the italian side and on the french side yeah and on the french side of the alps they they certainly specialized in the top quality stuff which then went um across into the paris basin and across to the morbihan area of Brittany. Um, whereas the people who are working in the italian on the italian side um some of their products would go down south um, to the far, further south in Italy and eastwards to places like Bulgaria and Romania and as far as um, Istanbul they've got examples wow amazing really amazing yeah so these are some very extensive networks mm. of how far these stone axes are traveling because then of course they also make it all the way to Britain yeah. and Ireland yeah they reckon it's about 1800 kilometers from Monteviso to Tristia wow. in County Mayo yeah which is phenomenal and then 1800 kilometers in the other direction eastwards you know to to istanbul and beyond and also amazingly they were able to work out that um some of them got reworked so that so some of them were were obtained by the elite in the southern in the morbihan southern area mm -hmm. of Brittany, and they got people there to thin them down deliberately yeah to make them so thin that if you hold it up to the sun the sun shines through the edges of these things which is wow. amazing, amazing. And they also perforated them. And I've, I've got into a lot of trouble in the past because when I give lectures, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we don't know what they did, but they must have suspended them somehow. And maybe these were big swinging dicks. <laughs> and, and somebody told me that I'd given this lecture about 10 years ago. And the only thing that the audience remembered, there's this weird woman from Edinburgh. She came and she talked about big swinging dicks. She's like, oh, no. <laughs> But essentially, the elite in the Montreal were very, very macho, very macho indeed. And yeah, yeah. these were the ones who erected gigantic standing stones, yep. you, know, really, you know, many, many tons, of, like 55 tons worth of, yeah, which are like giant phalli. And, and for them, the axe head was also a phallus, yeah, and the standing stones were phalli. And if you wanted any proof of that, these guys were buried under ginormous mounds. I mean, one of them was so big that they actually built a medieval chapel on top of it using stones from it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and in one of these things, and also they got the longest ones in Europe, yeah? yeah. So um, one of these gigantic axe heads was found sticking through a, a bangle, yeah? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a, a jade bangle, yeah? In yeah. the most suggestive kind of manner. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so say no more. <laughs> but anyway, and they've also found out that the ones that then were uh, thinned down in the Morbihan, some of them travelled back to North Italy. Yeah. So as an individual axe head might have travelled over three thousand six hundred kilometres in its lifetime. Oh, now was it? I, this is probably difficult to tell, but um, like, would it have just been the axe head itself? changing hands and moving along or well, like was there an individual or a group of people moving with the axe head and kind of bringing it back and forth that's a really 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 good question i think the answer is that it's it varies so yes there will have been you know communities there's a gigantic network of contacts that linked the farming communities right across europe for sure and you can also see where there are kind of preferred routes so there was almost like a hotline from um the jura which is the east of france to mm -hmm. the paris basin and then on to to uh, Brittany. And so some of these would have circulated around this network, diddly diddly diddly. But we think that the, the elite in the Morbihan managed 
they maybe had a kind of a hotline so they um, maybe they passed through far fewer hands before they reached them because they were able to get the cream of the crop yeah it was almost yeah. as though they they kind of faxed over yeah you know, they, 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 they put in their amazon you know request yeah. uh, and they got the best yeah because yeah. these people were so powerful and we know that the, the elite in the mokyon also um they sailed long distances so they had contact with um iberia across the Bay of Biscay, because they were getting varicite, which is another of these greenish rocks. Um, and they were making the varicite into beads, or they were acquiring varicite beads from, from Spain. Yeah. So clearly, these people were very, very well traveled. Okay. Yeah, that's, a, that's another thing that's always struck me, especially when we start talking about something like this with these vast, vast trade networks, is just how interconnected they were. Because this is, this is a time well before cars or yeah. trains or any kind of efficient travel i mean you're basically just kind of walking or you're sailing along or whatever that's and right it, it was always the belief that um you know the ancient people were kind of isolated and separated mm. from each other but it's it's really not the case it's really not the case absolutely no. and I, th I think we certainly underestimate the amount of of riverine uh movements yeah and in fact, one of the amazing aspects of Projejad is that there's a guy called Serge Cassin, who is a professor in Nantes, and he's been looking at um, megalithic art yeah, in Brittany and elsewhere. And there are these incredible images of, do you know Jamiroquai, the band? Oh dear, this is, again, this do is not. Like, too young. Oh my goodness me. Well, there was a, there was a rock band called Jamiroquai. And they, yeah. and they used to dress up in fantastic head, head, headgear. And one of these representations of this Neolithic person or God, looks a bit like Jamiroquai. Yeah, they're wearing this fabulous head thing, but they also have an ax head, yeah? And they've also got a bangle. And also in the background, there's a picture of a boat yeah, which is fantastic. Interesting. Yeah, so it's a story on a stone, which is amazing. Yeah. And you get similar representations of these axe heads all the way from Brittany. Uh, you get them in the Paris Basin, you get them in Burgundy, you get them in Switzerland. You don't get them in Britain or Ireland, unfortunately, but hey. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so you were asking how they, how they got around. And I think um, how they got to Britain and Ireland was that they weren't traded, but these were actually very precious possessions of incoming farming groups. Yeah. And okay. now, yeah, so I've been arguing for the last uh, decades, several decades, that farming was introduced by people, by immigrants from continental Europe. Yeah. And now that we've got the DNA evidence, right, from Palm the Brown, et cetera, we know for sure that people were coming in from the continent and and the ones who made it to ireland some of them i think came from the morbihan and others will have started off in the north of france in the north part of calais which is the bit that's closest you know you can see the white cliffs of dover from north part of calais yeah yeah okay and so they came mainly up the east side of britain and then they spread very quickly across scotland and i think they probably came from scotland down into ireland and so for these people they, these axe heads would have been centuries old because we yeah. know yeah we know from the overall um, type of chronology model that the ones that we get 
um, were probably made, some of them as early as 4,600, others as early as 4,200. But the date when farmers came, you know, the, the, the carinated bowl farmers, there was about 4,000-ish, you know, maybe 4,100 if um, Macaraboy, you know, the dates for Macaraboy um, causing closure in County Sligo yeah. suggest that they were here about 4,100. Um, and so I think these are kind of ancestral treasures these are precious community there yeah? and they probably had names and they probably had legends and the reason why so many of our ones are highly polished is that before they got into their boats to make that really dangerous sea journey if they believe these things were magic and they could protect you then maybe it's a little bit like the genie and the lamp you know if you polish yeah. them you're enhancing their magical protective oh, yeah. yeah that's really interesting because that's you know, it's, you know, kind of makes me think that these were uh, family heirlooms of a sort, yes. you know, they may, they may have had a legend associated with, you know, it, this belonged to our great, great, yes. great grandfather, and he had all sorts of tales associated with him. And so yeah. that was That's kind right. of their way to connect with their ancestors. Exactly. And it was something that they could yeah. bring with them. Absolutely. And likewise, they probably didn't know where the Alps were, but for them, these are green treasures from the magic mountains far away. Yeah. So there probably had been, you know, the legend is that these came from the divine mountains, you know, and in yeah. fact, when you go up these mountains, they are, they really are, I mean, literally awesome, which is the most overused phrase, but they literally are awesome. And when you're standing up there, you know, at the very top and the clouds come down below you, you get this tingle. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is really magical. It's, and, and you can easily um, understand how they, they would have believed that these things are sacred and they're powerful and you've got to treat them with respect. Yeah. And in fact, when we were up there, they found that there were little rough outs that they would have planted in the ground with the blade edge uppermost underneath rock overhangs, which is incredible. Yeah? And, so and, cool. and, yeah? and, and, and in most places, you tend not to find these things in settlements. Or, or at least in, in, in North Italy, where they were, they had been using them as kind of utilitarian access. So you get little, little, little ones. Okay, you know, they're domestic, but from quite early on, they were making special ceremonial ones. And where they tend to get found is special places in, in the landscape. Yeah. yeah. So some have been found by waterfalls. Some have been found um, at the top of where you get um, like a, a gorge. Yeah, like yeah. Cheddar Gorge, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, so these kind of sacred places in the landscape, and some of them could have been on significant routeways, and it's almost as though, because these things are sacred, you have to return them to the world of the gods from where they came. So once they had succeeded in getting you across from France to Britain, or from France to Ireland, whatever, um, then they've done their duty, and your duty is to get let them go back to, to the gods. Oh, that is... Neat. That, is, that is so neat oh you know and just kind of like as you're, as you're describing this so my family and I whenever we go traveling we usually go hiking because we like being out in the outdoors we like seeing the landscape and Ooh. so we've been to quite a few different uh natural features like waterfalls we've climbed yeah. mountains <laughs> very tiring <laughs> mountains um you know we've been to Actually, we've actually been to Cheddar Gorge, and we've been to a couple of other yeah. gorges, and there's always, if there's something special about those places that you just get that yeah. feeling. You now, if you're standing there mm -hmm. and you're looking out over the landscape, you're looking at this waterfall, and you can, you can yeah. feel that, that yeah. specialness. So I could, I could see yeah. why they would want to then, you know, 
that's where they would leave leave their axe that's where they would you know yeah. plant it to return it to the gods or to the ancestors exactly. as thanks for making it yeah. home fantastic and then the other thing that they did with some of them was deliberately to destroy them so they would deliberately break them or burn them or both yeah wow. so at Cairn Holy which is uh it's a little bit it's like a court tomb yeah in yeah. in the southwest of Scotland um there was a, a tiny fragment that had been both broken and burnt before it was deposited in the forecourt there and in fact the one that, that turned up recently so Ireland has got six and they're all beautiful and wonderful yeah. and the sixth one was found just a few years ago and when they uh train born and i'm sorry if i'm mangled uh, train bound <laughs> um, i'm not they, irish so i can't help you the pronunciation <laughs> students please let us know yes they <laughs> will t-r-e-a-n-b-a-u-n county galway yeah. and it's just a tiny little fragment from the side of one of these things and um, the people who were excavating it didn't recognize what it was. They thought it was some kind of maybe a Connemara marble bead or something. Mm -hmm. But Ross Muldoon came along and he said, oh, hang on, I think I know what this is. So he, he got on the blower and, uh, the, and the NMI um, very kindly gave us a, an export license. So we were able to take it across to France where it was non-destructively analyzed. And they said, yep, this is from Monteviso you know it's probably made about you know, 4300 bc or whatever mm -hmm. you know so that's pretty amazing and that you know again had deliberately been been broken and so what oh. we need to do is go and find the rest of it somewhere yes <laughs> just keep digging oh that is yeah. so cool <laughs> yeah and then the other ones that have been found in ireland so the one that was found in um uh, ray mochi or king craig in county donegal was found in peat uh, one was found in Town, County Westmeath, one in Tristia, County Mayo, uh, one in Nina, County Tipperary, and then there was one where it just says Ireland, there's no, no other detail. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of these were found a long time ago, so the one from Tristia was found in 1869, and of course there's, not, you know, there's no background information about the context yeah. of, of discovery. Um, but certainly the, the, the distribution in Ireland corresponds to, do you know the Carinated Bowl Neolithic? Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. One, one strand of the Neolithic, this one that is most similar to what you get in, in, in Britain. That's okay. right. So they're using this kind of specific kind of pottery, carinated bowl pottery, um, which is relatable to what you get in the, in the Paris basin. So it's Chassier Michelsberg pottery. Um, yeah, so, so that's really interesting. And, I, and in Ireland, you also have another strand of Neolithization that came from the Morbihan area of Brittany. And these were the people who built the little tiny tombs at Caramore. You know the closed oh, chambers yeah. and tombs, yeah. So they are from a different part of France, and they they will have arrived sometime between four thousand three hundred and three thousand nine hundred. We don't think that they brought any of these axe heads with them. Curiously, interesting. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, so therefore, the ones that you do get in Ireland, they they kind of map onto the distribution of carinated bowl pottery. That's so there we go. <laughs> Oh, that is really interesting. You know, I wonder, um, it'd be great if we could find more of them in Ireland. Yes. Uh, just so yeah. we could kind of add some more data to that map. 
That's uh, right. Yeah. And again, you know, you have to know what you're looking for, but they are so yeah. distinctive. And and um, and the, obviously they're on display in the National Museum. And I'm, I'm pretty sure if you if you uh, Google them, they must have pictures because they are unbelievably beautiful. Um, again, this glassy polish is a dead giveaway because yeah. you tend not to get that. You know, the only other kinds of axe heads that, that take a nice glassy polish are flint ones. And it's That's rare. Right. It's very rare to get a glassy polish on a, on a flint one. Um, and what else? And, and very often there's, there's no signs of them having been used. Yeah. So yeah. even though in theory you could use these for chopping down trees because they, you know, they're so tough that they would maintain a, a sharp blade for longer than an ordinary stone axe head. Um, nevertheless, they were so sacred that you wouldn't want to do that. You know, you, you use them for your religious ceremonies. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it, because they're made of such a special material, they came yeah. from such a distance, they have so much yeah. meaning to it. Uh, yeah. You put so much work into it to get to that nice glassy polish. Um, it'd almost be kind of like, I don't know. If you're try yeah, it would be sacrilege. I was like thinking, you know, if you're just using a cross for like a peg or something. Yes, you, you know, you got it in one. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I urge everybody to keep their eyes open. So when you next go to a waterfall, just kind of look around you. I will. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. you know, I usually I um it drives my parents crazy sometimes uh, ever since I was little I've always been a big rock collector and so anytime we'd go someplace I'd come home with just a bag full of rocks <laughs> yeah. so, I, I may have to go through some of those and see maybe yeah. I picked up some random shiny green rocks because I if I spotted them I definitely would have picked it up <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> they're just so beautiful they yeah. are and, and so we'll have to we'll have to put include some pictures of these um yeah, of these axes could, when we post this yeah, yeah that'd be great because i have seen some pictures um and they are absolutely gorgeous good hooray that's brilliant yeah they are beautiful now because uh, a lot of them like so they're all green and there's a lot of really cool green rocks um is there any particular reason why they might have chosen green fantastic question yes <laughs> yes and what i remember to do is um, I'll post for you an article that I did for Pojajad called Fifty Shades of Green. <laughs> and, it, and it was in a book called A Taste for Green, which looks um, cross-culturally at why do people go for green? So, I mean, the spooky thing about jade is that it's, it's valued and it, as a magical material around the world. So in yeah. China, yeah, they value it because um, it's, it's associated with um, living forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and in fact, there, there was this amazing thing. There's a prince dating to about 400 BC who was buried in this suit of armor all over with plugs for every orifice in his body made of jade. And in oh China, the, the variant of jade that they get there is called nephrite. And in New Zealand, the variant of jade they get there is called nephrite too. And there it's associated, it's called Punamu or Paunamu. And mm -hmm. if, you, if you watch that program recently, what was it called about the gold rush in New Zealand? Oh, it was a series oh, that was on. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to look it up. Okay, on TV. It. Oh dearie me, I was on a Sunday evening, very recently, and it was about the 19th century gold rush. Um, and anyway, one of the characters there is a Maori guy who has a mere, which is a nephrite club, and it, it's just fantastic. And you see him getting it out and striking the luminaries. 
The Luminary Festival. Yes. Well done. I just Yay. Googled it. <laughs> so I urge you to watch Luminaries. Forget about the gold. Just just concentrate on the, on the nephrite Mary. <laughs> so for them, it's associated with very much the ancestors and family values and kindness and all that kind of thing. And also in Mesoamerica, yes. Yeah, that's right. Aztec, Maya, they were very much, and jade to them was more valuable than gold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you get these incredible labyrinths, yeah, jade labyrinths that went through their lips and all sorts of things, yeah, and jade axe heads. Yeah, that's one thing that I think is probably the most interesting is the fact that jade is so valued across the globe because yeah. you know you could almost you could almost kind of argue if something has importance kind of across Europe and Asia um, yeah. there could be some very distant connection or uh, transfer of ideas but mm. you know to have something that has that much importance yeah. intercontinentally it, yeah like that yeah. it just you know it's yeah. It's, it's so fantastic. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, the specific symbology varies so that in Mesoamerica, they love the color green because that is a color of unripe maize. Yeah. yeah? And therefore, again, that is, that is a sign that when you die, you'll come back again. So it's, it's immortality again. So it's, it's a twist on the Chinese, you know, variant on yeah. the Chinese idea. Yeah. But also the term nephrite is from the Greek nephros, meaning kidney. And incredibly, in lots of parts of the world, they believe that if you have or wear jade, this, this is good for problems with your waterworks. And in fact, that belief um, survived until the 19th century because in the British Museum, they've got an amazing Neolithic axe head of jadeite that was owned by a Scottish soldier and he had it perforated and he had it uh, mounted in silver. So it's got a little silver frilly bit around it. And he wore it like a sporran. Yeah, oh in gosh. the belief that it would it would cure his, you know, I don't know, gallstones or whatever. Interesting. Just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. So you, I, I, don't, I have no idea what the association between, you know, why does that green stone have an um, association with that particular part of your body? But, you know, lots of different stones were uh, attributed special powers. So for yeah. example, amber, amber, people loved amber because they thought if you're blind or if you've, you're hard of seeing, amber will help you know, uh, cure blindness. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's the same with, I mean, you know, with the, the kind of crystal stuff these days. And a lot yeah. of people, yeah, and copper bracelets, people believe it's good for rheumatism or arthritis or whatever. Yeah, no, there's a, there's usually a stand that sells uh, copper bracelets in Air Square when the market pops up there. There I you think, go. I think I've seen her there every year for the past four years. <laughs> <laughs> so you can ask them what the scientific basis is for the efficacy of these things. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure they'll talk you off about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then, I mean, the other amazing thing that's come out of Quajajad, and it really emerged over the course of, of um, you know, looking through hundreds of museum collections, is the number of uh, ethnographic axe heads and adze heads made of these materials that ended up in Europe. So, for example, New Zealand adzes are very, very distinctive. They've, they've got a very rectangular sharp profile okay yeah and and many and also they're mostly adzes you know the difference between an adze and if an axe has got um a blade that is symmetrical yeah, yeah. whereas an adze um it's kind of flat on one side and it's convex on the other side and you would haft it differently so with an axe 
you're, you're doing it that way. And with an ads, it's at 90 degrees. So you're pulling the thing towards you. And ads is, yeah, so if, for example, you're making a dugout canoe, you would use an ads for the, you know, getting out the bits yeah. in downways motion. Whereas if you're chopping a tree, you do it in a sideways motion. Yeah, mm, yeah. yeah. So anyway, and, and, but in a, quite a few cases, they, uh, like the ones that are made in the Caribbean, the so-called petaloid axe heads look very, very similar to ones that were made in the Alps, the North Italian Alps. And for a good while, they had Pogégeade fooled. And, uh, and, and they're called petaloid because they look like a petal of a flower. Oh, yeah. And they, they are distinctive because the butt is very pointy and it's quite circular. But once they realize, and, and also they're made of jadeite because in the Motagua Valley in Guatemala, there is a source of high quality jadeite. So again, you know, when you analyze them, you think, oh, this is, this is interesting, this is jadeite, yeah. But, it, but it's, it hasn't got the same signature as the alpine jadeite. And so um, quite how that got over to here is an interesting question. And I think it's to do with the slavery trade so in our museum, National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh, we have one of these things. It's not jadeite, but it's, it's certainly a, a Caribbean petaloid axe head. And it was acquired by um, Alexander Henry Rind in the 1860s. And on it is written Cornwall. But we know it wasn't found in Cornwall. It probably ended up in Cornwall because from Cornwall, sailors would go all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're thinking, my goodness me, this is a... And, and when, then we, you inquire um, about... Hmm, how did Caribbean axe heads come to be in Europe? And the answer is that a lot of the slaves on the plantations would find them when they are digging you know, to plant the cotton and all that. They would then give them to the plantation owners, yeah? uh, many of whom then either retired to Europe or they had chums in Europe or whatever. So here's this really curious um, resonance with the Black Lives Matter thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is very, very, very interesting indeed. Yeah. And in fact, it's so interesting that, that Podrejad, there are already four thick tomes, and there's going to be a fifth one that, that's all about the Caribbean ones. And of course, these are, yeah, are much younger than the, the Neolithic ones. So, you know, they might date to, oh, I don't know, between AD 500 and AD 1500 or so. Yeah, whereas the Neolithic ones are from 5200 to about 2800 BC. Yeah, much older. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there you go, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> and, and, and the other, I mean, one of the strangest things of all was that um, people dredge up axe heads from rivers, including the River Thames. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah and in, in one of the museums, they had this collection that had been dredged from the Thames. Uh, and then some of them are kind of ordinary Neolithic stone axe heads, nothing special. Uh, and yet, some of them are certainly alpine ones and then you get ethnographic ones huh? so what on earth is in, yeah and we figured that maybe somebody had collected lots of axe heads and then yeah. when he died his family thought oh we're not interested in this but we don't want to confuse archaeologists so let's just chuck them in the river yeah. Yeah? <laughs> where they were dredged up and they confused archaeologists Probably even more than yeah. if they just left him be. And so, again, over the course of Pajajad, you know, we have now learned that if something was found in somebody's garage or garden, hmm, it's more than likely that it's going to be an ethnographic one that was you know, acquired through 19th century you know, antiquarian collecting. Yeah. yeah. So beware. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what you actually need is kind of job. idiot's guide. Yeah, what's good, what's not good. <laughs> yeah. No, but, oh gosh, that is all, that's just so fascinating. Um, <laughs> you know, mm. just the, the whole network of these axes and the distances that they travel, the amount of work that went into them and just all these different connections between, yeah. you know, what first looks like far-flung peoples, you yeah. know, and they were obviously, they were somehow communicating with each other and yeah, bringing absolutely. these axe heads all over the place. And yeah. it's just, it's such a cool story. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, and there's more. There's more. <laughs> and, yeah, they're also able to work out that, you know, in, in some many societies in Neolithic Europe, they were highly stratified. Yeah. So these guys in, yeah. in Brittany, it was a real macho, powerful society. And it's the same if you go to Varna in Bulgaria, there mm. is an amazing cemetery there. It's called V-A-R-N-A. And that is where the earliest gold objects in the world are. And so in a, in a really spooky echo of Brittany, you get these big men graves. And there's one of them in particular where the guy has got lots of, he's got lots of gold. And he has um, an alpine axe head in between his legs. He also has a gold penis sheath, which may or may not have been moved upwards and downwards when they found oh, no, we're not it. But again, it's the same symbolism. So axe it's very, It's house. very evocative. Very evocative. And also in Bulgaria, the elite there, they got them from Montebegua, but they had them reshaped to look like copper axe heads because uh, from about 4,200 um, at least, people in Eastern Europe were making copper axe heads. So while in the West, jade was the, you know, the must-have substance, in the East, it was copper. And so Pierre Petrequin talks about a Europe of jade and a Europe of copper. And what you also get is, in some cases, they were making copper axes in the shape of the jadeotype ones, and vice versa. Yeah? Interesting. Cool. Very, very interesting. Yeah, because that reminds me, I'm trying to remember exactly where I heard it. It was in some class that we were talking about how, um, uh, I think, I can't, oh my gosh, it's going to bug me until I remember, but I think it was something about how we were talking about kind of the, tran uh, the transition between, like, stone into, into yes. metalworking and a lot of the early like metal tools and metal weapons often replicated or like, you know, were designed in a similar fashion to the stone ones because that's what they were yes. familiar with. That's what they were used to. And it wasn't that's until right. like they, they kind of started getting used to it and then they started developing their own new styles. And then that's when we see like yeah. new styles of, of metal weapons and metal tools emerging that are completely different from how they looked when they were in stone. Exactly, that's right. And also you'll find that the chronology of copper working varies hugely across Europe well, and, and elsewhere. Yeah? So that, you know, whereas in Southeast Europe, they were making copper from the probably late sixth century. Yeah, if not early sixth century. Um, you don't get copper in Ireland until until those Beaker people came to Ross Island and they opened yep. up the amazing mine about 2400 BC. Yeah, so it's much, much, much later in, in our neck of the woods. And, and now again, thanks to DNA, we're able to say, yeah, there really were Beaker people who came over. Yeah. Oh, that is so, that is just so, so cool. And again, it just, it just, it completely goes against, you know, a lot of, um, kind of assumptions people can have about ancient peoples and them yeah. being, like I said before, you know, that's kind of how I thought for a really long time just kind of growing up because that's kind of how 
you're yeah. taught is just that you know they're so distant yeah. they had to walk and you know yeah. why are they going to walk this distance or even sail this distance just it's too far it's too dangerous so then you yeah. find this you know yeah. this evidence in the the craftsmanship or the trade yes. items or yeah. the uh the Good. genetics and you're like no yeah. they traveled they enormous traveled, yes. distances <laughs> i mean it's like the people who are building new grange and now from delph yeah. you know we can tell that yes they really did sail down to the Mohmiel area of Brittany, they sailed to Iberia as well, because at Nauf you've got this, this idol thing. And the only parallel for that is to be found in the, the Tagus estuary near Lisbon in Portugal, which is pretty amazing. And at Newgrange, you get this tiny little foot-shaped amulet thing. And the only parallels for those are in northwest Spain. So it is, and, and also the art and the design of the Northwest looks like a, a Breton Alecoudé, you know, and it's, it's just mind blowing, it really is. And, and then of course, people came from Orkney to the Boyne Valley and mm -hmm. vice versa. And we know in, in Orkney, there's this thing called the Orkney Vole, a tiny little yeah. vole, which you, you only get in Orkney, that particular kind of vole. And um, it can only have got there in a boat in the Neolithic from continental Europe. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. Oh, that's so neat. <laughs> Yeah, so we've we've mentioned quite a few times the um, like traveling by boat, either by yes. coasts or along rivers. Yeah. Um, by by this point in time, um, would they have been using oxen and horses and carts and things like that in their travels as well, or is this a bit bit early? There's there's no evidence for that. Yeah. So you get the use of wheel transport in the Calcolithic in Europe. So mm -hmm. oh, well, so oh, no, that's a very good question, actually. When the <laughs> earliest wheel transport was. No, I think it's uh, certainly it's, it's post post Neolithic. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the things of the Calcolithic. Um, and certainly to, as far as when they started using domesticated horses is a very good question. So we know that the people who rode in from the steppe, the so-called Yamnaya people, um, who came from the Russian steppes into uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and Northern Europe around 2,900, they were horsemen, they, they rode yeah, um, but there is no and 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 people used to think that um, domesticated horses were introduced by Beaker people into Britain and Ireland, but there's actually no evidence for that. So at Newgrange, where there are horse remains, and everybody used to say, "Oh, wow, they're, they're Beaker," because they were found in the area where you get Beaker pottery. Yeah. when they actually really carbon dated them, they're Iron Age. Yeah, Interesting. and when they, they, yeah. Yeah, and Robin Bendry looked at them and he found that there's actually um, iron. There's rust on the teeth from the bits. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's really, really interesting. Uh, and therefore, yeah, no, it's going to be um, Shanks's pony. It's you know, foot or boat. And as, <laughs> but as far as what kinds of boats there are, obviously we don't. Um, you know, we we assume they must have been like large curraghs. Which yeah. would have been perfectly seaworthy. And there's a guy called Clive who makes um, scaled up versions of Boyne curraghs, you know, the kind of rice that were made for, made for salmon fishing on the, on the River Boyne. Yeah. yeah, so he makes these scaled up versions and he sails them. And they're perfectly seaworthy because you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to, to cross the Irish Sea in a, in a log boat. Yeah? yeah, log boats are fine for rivers, they're fine for Loch Ney. You know, they're fine for inland thingy and they're fine if you do just kind of you know um not too far away from the shore but yeah, you don't yeah. want to go on the open ocean in a, in a little local <laughs> well, the, the, the open ocean boats, is tough enough when you're on like a, a proper yeah. mechanical ferry <laughs> <laughs> absolutely 
And, and also, if you're bringing animals and, and cereals across, which they would have had to do, you're not going to bring a full-sized ox with you, your bull, you know? Yeah. You're going to bring babies, yeah? So the little <laughs> yeah. piglets and little lambs and little calves and your seed corn. And that's yeah. perfectly viable, yeah? And there, there are some fantastic, you know, Carlton Jones? Yeah, in, yeah, he's one of my lectures. professors. <laughs> Yay! Well, he, he, um, he reproduced a fantastic photograph in one of his books about traditional farmers on the Aran Islands who were taking their piggies in Curras and what they did was to um, you know tie their uh, hoofs together their trotters yeah. together yeah of course so that they wouldn't kick yeah and so it can be done yeah <laughs> no no because that's you know that is one thing that I that I always wonder about is you know how they how how this all this transport happened and you know um, it kind of kind of goes to what you said like how the the copper working happened at different points in time in different areas yes. um, it's also kind of a common misconception people might have is like when you know at the start of the stone age everyone was starting the stone age and then everyone yes. was starting in the copper age and like you know it it, yeah. it took time some places got to it yeah. early some places got to it a bit later and you know it's mm -hmm. the same thing with uh domestication is you know, yeah. when when horses or, or cattle or any of that first got domesticated, it took time for that to reach other places. It sure did, yeah. So, so far, the earliest dated evidence for domesticated horse in the whole of Britain and Ireland, we've got their dates from us, from our museum, and they're about 1300 to 1100 BC. So it's really quite late on. It's, it's middle yeah. to late Bronze Age, really. Uh, I mean, that's not to say that there weren't earlier domesticated horses, but every time, you know, people have gone to um, a, a specimen that has been held up and said, oh, look, this is Beaker period, when they've dated it, it's either Iron Age or it's Mesolithic, uh, or Medieval, rather. Not yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get wild horses, yeah, wild yeah. horses, uh, but they died out way, way, way before they then brought domesticated horses. That's right. That's right. And then there's a whole school of horse genetics, just as there's a whole school of dog genetics and cattle genetics. Yep. That's... Yeah, that's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something else. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so that's just, that's all absolutely fascinating. Uh, so like, like I said at the beginning, you know, this was one of, when you came to talk to the society, um, it was like the first uh, lecture that I had gone to as a member. And I, it was just, it was the coolest thing. I sat, I have a little notebook <laughs> and I was just scribbling down all my notes. I still have it. I tried to find it, but I think it's in Galway at the moment. I am not there right now. So I'll have to see if I can dig up my notes again, because it really was just, it's such a fascinating topic because yeah. I mean, for one thing, we're talking about stone axes. And as I said before, I love rocks, so, and they're absolutely gorgeous, you know, just, I love yeah. me some shiny rocks, so, yeah. it was, it was cool to hear about these, and it's just so cool to hear about the whole, the whole network, and Brilliant. just the whole story that goes on behind it, and, Lovely. yeah, so you said that, um, uh, this project is now technically finished, is yeah. there a, um, like, is there a follow-up to it? Has this progressed into a different kind of project? Are they doing other studies? Um, That's a very good question. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, having produced these four gigantic tomes, there's a fifth one coming because Chiapetica right. is Mr. Energy, he, you know, in, in the, and it's really thorough. And Good for him. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this fifth one will major on these Caribbean ones and okay. the other ethnographic ones. So it'll be very interesting. Um, in, and, and I'm pleased to say that volumes one and two um, 
we can make them available to everybody because when they published volumes three and four, they created a CD-ROM of yeah. volumes one and two and of the, the entire database. Um, and so again, I can kind of, uh, we transfer that through to you. So if anybody wants to have a look at it. Yeah, okay. that'd be fantastic. Good. And because it was a French project, um, most of the stuff is in French, but every single chapter has got an English um, abstract. And I translated all, virtually all of them. So if, if you get to one where the English isn't so good, that I didn't do that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. <laughs> but the, and they've got wonderful pictures in them. I mean, amazing pictures. Everything you want to know plus a whole load more. Yes. Oh yeah. No, that, that would be fantastic. Cause this is just, it's such an interesting topic and right. you know, you, know just, you could probably go on for hours and hours talking about it cause yeah. there's so much information. <laughs> yeah. Because apart from anything else, there's of course the Irish Stone Axe project, which was independent of this. Um, that was done by Gabriel Cooney and Steve Mandel. And that is fantastic because that then looks at the domestic picture of Axe Head manufacture. So Teve Bullier, yeah and broccoli yeah. the sources of porcelainite they were able to find that there's something what over twenty thousand axe heads of porcelainite in ireland you know it, and it's by far the dominant um preferred stone for it yeah so that's really really, really interesting oh. yeah and then we've looked at the distribution of porcelainite elsewhere in, in britain but don't get me started <laughs> i think it's probably time for a cup of tea <laughs> i think we're getting to that point yeah yeah it's so, a really happy hour <laughs> just just about <laughs> okay uh, so gosh. i don't know if people have any questions they're welcome to email them through to me yeah well that, that would be fantastic and thank you so much for um for doing this this has been great we had actually been talking about uh trying to get you in to talk to the society again um yeah. and then the pandemic hit and we're like well we can't do anything in person, so let's just let's just start calling people up. So it's fantastic. Yeah. It's a whole lot cheaper too. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yes, Brilliant. it is. Though so, you yes. know, the, we will miss actually, you know, having people in person. And yeah. I always enjoyed taking the speakers out to dinner afterward. Yeah, because uh, it was great crack. to be able to. Yeah, it, it was good. Yeah. Crack. Um, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, we'll be able to do the. We'll be able to do in person stuff in the future, but for now. This has been, this has been great. Fantastic. So. Well, I'll be back. Yes. <laughs> yes. Definitely. They don't get rid of me that easy. <laughs> Did I keep telling people? They're like, you're still here. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much. This is, this has been great. So. You're very welcome. Yes. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Have Travel Will Travel a production of the National University of Ireland Galway Archaeology Society. If you get a moment, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and your favourite podcast supplier. Thank you for listening.